What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Let's talk about the economy a little bit and how it's affecting you and your life. The National Association of Home Builders just released a new report today. Unexpectedly, this is from NASDAQ.com, right? This is from the, the NASDAQ Stock Exchange's news service. You can find this article at nasdaq.com. The headline is U.S. Home Builder Confidence Unexpectedly Slumps to Three-Year Low in December. The National Association of Home Builders released a report on Monday unexpectedly showing a continued deterioration in confidence in the month of December. The unexpected drop of the housing market index reflected decreases by all of the components indexes, with the index measuring current sales conditions showing a notable six-point slump in December over November. And by the way, November had been down as well. But that's not the biggest story. The biggest story, Bloomberg is talking about this, all the, all the kind of in the know folks in the, in the financial markets, you know, in the, in the financial press are freaking out about this. Well, you'll recall back in 2008, late 2007, early 2008, there were all these kind of leading indicators, but it really hit the fan in October's August, September, October, and I think it was particularly bad in October of 2008, as I recall, just, just in time for the election, that what happened was this, quote, liquidity crisis. Now, what does that mean? Liquidity is how easy it is to borrow, to borrow or to spend money. In other words, uh, how rapidly money flows through the economy, how liquid the economy is, money-wise. And what happened in 2008, in late 2008, was something that literally had not happened since 1929, which is that the money just dried up. The banks stopped lending. Banks started, were on the verge of bankruptcy. They were about to fail. They actually did fail between 1929 and 1933, March of 33. But, and actually, you know, Lehman Brothers did fail. So the thing that freaks out people like the Fed and people like the Treasury Secretary, although I don't think Steve Mnuchin much gives a rat's ass. He was the foreclosure king, after all. He made a fortune on the last economic crash 
with, I think it was called Bank West or One West, whatever the bank was that he bought out West. And then he started massively foreclosing on people's homes using robo-signers. This is the guy who's currently our Secretary of the Treasury. You know, one of the greediest men in America, Steve Mnuchin. Well, you know, whether or not he cares about this, this is a big deal. This is the headline in today's Financial Times. U.S. credit markets dry up as volatility rattles investors. The first two paragraphs, which are the first two sentences. U.S. credit markets are grinding to a halt with fund managers refusing to bankroll buyouts and investors shunning high-yield bond sales. Not a single company has borrowed money through the $1.2 trillion U.S. high-yield corporate bond market this month. Now, we're 17 days into the month, but still, that's shocking. Back to the Financial Times, uh, this is by Eric Platt, Colby Smith, and Joe Renison in New York. If that drought persists, it would be the first month since November 2008 that not a single high-yield bond priced in the market. Guy Labasse, a strategist at Janney Montgomery Scott, says, this is more than year-end jitters. What we're seeing now is pretty typical for end-of-credit-cycle behavior. Right. In today's New York Times, their uh, dealbook newsletter, stocks around the world are being pummeled. Commodities are tumbling. If this persists or grows worse, it could create a damaging feedback loop. Pessimism emanated from the stock market that leaves consumers and businesses scared to spend. The route in junk bond markets makes it more expensive for financially fragile businesses to borrow. And the collapse in crude oil prices, which, by the way, Donald Trump has been encouraging, right? Hey, Saudi Arabia, drive down the price of oil so I can claim your gas is cheap. The collapse in crude oil prices discourages new investment and hiring in the oil patch. I would add it discourages new investment in the, uh, uh, in the uh, renewable energy business as well. Now, just consider this for a moment. You know, the definition of, of a locked up market is when nobody is borrowing money. Not a single company has borrowed money through the $1.2 trillion U.S. high-yield corporate bond market this month. Now, yeah, we're only two weeks into the month, but if that drought persists, they write, it would be the first month since November 2008 that not a single high-yield bond priced in the market, according to data providers Informa and DealLogic. This is big. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us right now is David Dayan, journalist, contributor to The Intercept and the New Republic, author of the new book, Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin story. The website, David Dayan, D-A-Y-E-N.com, and you can tweet him at ddayan. David, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this is absolutely fascinating, this whole Steve Mnuchin story. Let's kind of start at the beginning here. Where well, actually, let's start at the end. How corrupt is Steve Mnuchin? How precarious is his position in this administration? You know, what do we need to know about what's happening with him right now? And then I'd like to get into how he got where he is. Sure. I mean, everything's relative in the Trump administration, right? Yeah, it seems. I mean, you could call Steve Mnuchin the most squeaky clean member of the Trump cabinet, and that would still put you in pretty dicey territory. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, the arc of Steve Mnuchin's career is someone who was uh, a financier at the highest levels, whether it's Goldman Sachs or his own hedge fund, uh, his own bank. Uh, and then he moves into the government and is a driving force behind the very policies that benefit financiers, bankers, and, and, and his former uh, colleagues and friends. 
You're talking about he was a, a, a major player in the tax legislation, which uh, has been incredibly profitable for the banking industry. And for Stephen uh, Mnuchin, presumably. a major player in deregulation of the financial sector, uh, which obviously has benefited his, his former pals. So, um, you know, it, it may not be personal corruption uh, in a sense, but it's certainly uh, the kind of corruption that comes from having a fox guard the hen house. Yeah, literally, um, yeah. And, and no pun intended. So where did Steve Mnuchin come from? Right, so Steve Mnuchin, uh, one thing that's interesting uh, in this book that uh, I should say uh, was also co-written by uh, my uh, partner, Rebecca Burns. Mm. Uh, so she, she uh, should get some credit here. But uh, she unearthed this quote that, you know, at his confirmation hearing, he says he, uh, you know, started at Goldman Sachs working on a folding chair. Like he was uh, this this uh, up-by-their-bootstraps kind of figure. Uh, the truth is, is that his father was a partner at Goldman Sachs. His brother worked at Goldman Sachs for 12 years. Uh, his college roommates both ended up working at Goldman Sachs. One of them was Eddie Lampert, who's in the news now because he was the, uh, the hedge fund guy who bought Sears uh, and ran it into the ground. Mm. Um, Mnuchin has lived, you know, his entire life, essentially, in uh, the rarefied air of, of power and privilege, uh, and particularly financial power. And so he goes to Goldman Sachs uh, as a legacy, essentially. He uh, you know, gets, uh, has a, an internship at Solomon Brothers, which uh, is the company that uh, ends up creating the mortgage-backed security. He worked under Lou Ranieri, who is the godfather of the mortgage-backed security, essentially the godfather of the financial crisis. Hmm. Uh, and Mnuchin was working with him. He ends up going back to Goldman Sachs and running uh, their, their mortgage desk. Uh, he, he ends up escaping trouble there by leaving and starting his own hedge fund. Uh, Dune Entertainment, which is named after, uh, uh, I, I believe, uh, his, his summer home on Long Island or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, he ends up buying one of these distressed banks that uh, IndyMac, which is taken over in receivership by the FDIC, and he buys it, renames it uh, One West Bank, uh, and becomes what uh, he has been called by critics as the foreclosure king. Uh, he's someone who uh, One West Bank is tied up in all of the issues around illegal foreclosures, around uh, kind of heartless situations of foreclosing on people over, you know, 10 cent underages on their payments. Uh, and uh, he, you know, does that for several years as the chairman and chief, one of the principal investors in, in One West Bank, which he kind of created. How did he bail out of One West Bank? How did he not get, uh, you know, sucked down the drain in 2008? So, so, so One West Bank was purchased after 2008. IndyMac was a failed subprime lender. And Mnuchin, through his hedge fund, brings in a bunch of investors, makes a deal with the FDIC that includes a stop-loss uh, uh, function so that he uh, does not take the hit on foreclosures above a certain threshold. And this enables him to uh, lard on fees, profit off of uh, the, you know, clearing out the underbrush of all these toxic subprime loans, with the government taking a good bit 
of uh, the, 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 the losses, uh, and, and, and him uh, and his investors ended up taking the proceeds. Uh, One West ends up flipping uh, CIT, which is another bank that, that's owned by John Fain, who ran Merrill Lynch into the ground. Uh, CIT ends up buying One West for double, roughly, the investment that uh, Mnuchin and his consortium made. So they made out very well on One West Bank, despite the fact that it engaged in these mass amount of foreclosures uh, that that really uh, uh, ruined wow. people's lives. So he doubled his money, uh, basically throwing people out of their homes. How, you know, this he's our Treasury Secretary. This is a position that requires confirmation by the United States Senate. To what extent was this history brought up in the Senate confirmation hearings? And why is it that the average American doesn't realize that the guy running the Treasury Department was, you know, I mean, literally referred to by his friends as a, as a, as a term of endearment in some cases as the foreclosure king? So it was brought up, and yet it wasn't brought up. I mean, Republicans uh, controlled the Senate, uh, uh, obviously, and uh, Democrats held like these kind of remarkable extra... Uh, senatorial hearings uh, with foreclosure victims who suffered at the hands of One West policies, uh, where they gave direct testimony uh, to to the Senate, uh, Democrats on the Senate in the Senate, uh, about uh, what what they suffered from at at the hands of One West Bank. Uh, the other thing that I reported on at the time is that the California Attorney General's Office initiated an investigation into One West Bank. Uh, which found what they called widespread uh, misconduct in the foreclosure process. And they, they sent this up the chain, and the, uh, uh, the attorney general at that time uh, uh, was Kamala Harris, who now is a senator from California, and she was recommended by her, uh, you know, her, her lower-level staff to prosecute One West Bank for these, these particular issues, and she chose not to uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but uh, the, the document itself was unearthed. Uh, it was actually sent to my house in a brown paper bag. Wow. Um, it, 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 it wasn't known about until right before the hearing when we, we released it. And uh, this, this did not play really a, a factor. Uh, uh, you know, every, Demo- every Republican voted for Steve Mnuchin to confirm him. Uh, but it did show that, that there was this, uh, you know, between that and the hearings, that there was this real discomfort with, with the way that Mnuchin operated at One West. Uh, homeowner activists, uh, foreclosure victims uh, were adamant that this guy was uh, running a foreclosure factory uh, based in, in some cases on, on illegal documents. Uh, uh, he, uh, Mnuchin has has, uh, in my view, perjured himself on numerous occasions to the Congress uh, by saying that his bank did not robo-sign when we have sworn testimony from vice presidents of One West Bank saying, I spent 30 seconds putting my signature on documents that attested to me knowing everything about the underlying loan. Uh, it's, it's obvious that he, he lied about this over and over again on at least three occasions in both written and oral testimony to Congress. And yet, uh, this is the, Mnuchin is a kind of guy that just sort of skates free. Wow. Talking to David Dayan, whose new book is Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin story. Now that the Democrats are taking control of the House, 
is is there enough juice to encourage one of the committees that has oversight over the Treasury Department to start investigating Mnuchin to look into this stuff, or is it, well, or I mean, is this all you know safely behind us? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're talking about perjury towards Congress, you're, you're probably talking about the Justice Department having to uh, prosecute that, and I don't see that coming. If you're talking about the abuses uh, covered under foreclosures, uh, that's probably a state uh, issue, and I don't see that uh, state of California. Uh, really happening. Uh, you know, it, the statutes are done and, and, and people have moved on. Uh, Steve Mnuchin is now in the corridors of power, and he uh, is able to, uh, you know, in widespread fashion, uh, dictate policies uh, that have an impact on, on not just the banking sector, but really everybody. And, uh, you know, when you, when you really look at the full picture of the man and, and his origins and, and what he did in the private sector, and how he's rewarding the same people that he palled around with uh, while Treasury Secretary it paints a really disturbing picture. But I'm not sure if there's uh, a total way out of it, although turnover being what it is in the Trump administration, who knows, maybe he won't be there even tomorrow. Wow. So he escapes accountability again, this legacy child, Steve Mnuchin. David Dan, brilliant. Fat Cat is the book, the Steve Mnuchin story. DavidDan.com, D-A-Y-E-N.com is the website. You can tweet him at D-Dan. David, thank you. All right, thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. We all want to find the perfect unicorn gift to give at the holiday gift exchange or to family and friends that'll really stand out, right? I have one that will be the talk of the office, a hit with friends and family, and will actually be useful. Tiger Lady. Tiger Lady's been featured in Runner's World Gift Guide two years now. You may know Tiger Lady as the revolutionary self-defense tool based on a cat's retractable claws. When you make a fist, three claws come out like a real-life wolverine. It's lightweight and designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady doesn't require training, and it's legal in all 50 states. It's recommended by police and self-defense instructors, making it the perfect stocking stuffer for anyone on your list. Tiger Lady will make your loved ones feel aware and confident when they walk alone. Order by December 14th for free shipping and time for Christmas. Go to TigerLady.com or use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, for a 25% savings and to receive a free whistle LED flashlight keychain while supplies last. Give the gift of safety this year by giving Tiger Lady. Remember, use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, and go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. Yale University held a summit last week in New York City. And the New York Times summarized this in their uh, dealbook briefing this morning. They've got this newsletter called The Dealbook that I subscribe to. And there were 134 business leaders at this meeting, right? The captains of industry in America, major CEOs of major corporations. It was put on by Yale University, very prestigious event. Just consider these numbers, right? Again, the New York Times and Yale University, this is, this is, this is not, you know, some obscure progressive blog. This is the New York Times and Yale University. Three out of four CEOs, American CEOs, said publicly that they often apologize to their international business partners about Trump's messages, Trump's tweets, Trump's statements, Trump's stupidity. Three out of four. 
87% said that Trump has cost our nation allies. Three quarters said Donald Trump is not leading us effectively on issues critical to U.S. national security. Almost half, now this is where it gets really spooky, almost half said that they expect us to wind up in a recession. Now, you know, you read these articles and they're like, well, you know, a recession by 2020, a recession by 20, you know, late 2019. No, no. Almost half of the CEOs said they expect a recession to start in January. That's a week and a half away, and two weeks away. The greatest threat to U.S. markets, 67%, more than two-thirds of them said. What is the greatest threat to the United States, to our economy? Political instability. In other words, Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Oh, and 90% of them said that the tech industry, specifically, you know, companies like Facebook, Google, you know, the big software tech companies, need to be regulated. 90%. We need to regulate this stuff. The idea that a recession is coming. Stocks around the world being pummeled. Commodities are tumbling. Uh, the New York Times says if this persists or grows worse, it could create a damaging feedback loop. Pessimism emanating from the stock market could leave consumers and businesses scared to spend, they write. The route in junk bonds makes it more expensive for financially fragile businesses to borrow. The collapse in crude oil prices, which Donald Trump has jawboned the Saudis to make happen. The collapse in crude oil prices discourages new investments and hiring in the oil patch, which has been a source of job growth here in the United States. And in that sense, they say the, the markets are both a gauge of what investors expect to happen in the economy and a potential catalyst. In other words, it's a feedback loop, right? People look at it and they go, oh my God, it's going down. I better get out. And then when they get out, it makes it go down farther. The mood of the financial markets ultimately feeds into spending by companies and consumers, and if they pull back based on panicky ups and downs, growth could suffer. Let's uh, check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. Bob Ney is on the line with us. Hey, Bob, what's up? Well, Tom, it's a very fascinating day uh, in many, many ways, but just wanted to focus in first on the uh, on the health care law, of okay. course, and uh, and that decision because uh, looking more towards uh, just putting on the old congressional hat of what people will prepare to do or not do, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with it. But of course, as we know now, that the the judge has struck down the entire bill due to the Republicans changing the tax code, where people previously, of course, had to pay to the IRS. Uh, a penalty if they didn't have health care, which is what Roberts focused on the Republican justice when he actually went. Um, right. If I could, forward. if I could recap that real quickly, the uh, Republican argument when they first went after Obamacare was that it was unconstitutional. John Roberts said no because the penalty is collected by the Internal Revenue Service as opposed to any other agency. It's a tax, and the taxing authority of Congress is right there in the Constitution, so this is constitutional. Then uh, last year, when the Republicans did their GOP tax scam, the tax cut for billionaires, they right. did away with that penalty, which, which was the tax. And so uh, Scott Walker's attorney general and Rick Scott's attorney general and a bunch of, you know, a group of Republican attorney generals went to this right-wing judge in, in uh, Texas, in North Texas, 
and said, hey, the tax is gone. It's no longer constitutional. There's no longer a tax in it. And he said, you're right, and threw the whole thing out. That's right. Yeah, you summed it up perfect. That's exactly what happened. And now the big picture, and his name's O'Connor, and if his ruling stands, or if it takes you know, effect before an appeal could be filed, uh, and then again, who, you know, who files the appeal? Of course, you're not going to be seeing the Trump administration in there ready to swing. Right. Then it would literally kick off millions of people off the exchange, off of private insurance, and millions more off of Medicaid for those states who have you know, also bought into that. Right. And then it also would immediately, all the way across the board, eliminate the uh, protections that people have for pre-existing conditions, all in one swoop. Right. It could do that. Right. And in fact, the and this is something I'm, I, you know, just I'm pulling my hair out here. I, you know, on all the TV coverage of this, nobody ever mentions that the lawsuit right in the body of the lawsuit, it said that the protections on pre-existing conditions were unconstitutional and should be removed. I mean, these Republican attorneys general who lied about it on television during their you know, re-election campaigns and their governors lied about it, specifically sued to do away with protections on pre-existing conditions. Correct. And they won. And that, was, and that was the motive. And then at one time, remember, the Congress was bracing to see what it would have to do, including Republicans, ready for the onslaught. And, of course, that you know, has evaporated, and the Republicans have, have obviously lost control of the House. Right. So they're not actually you know, going to try to own this now of what to do with it. Now, legal experts, Tom, who have both opposed and supported the American Health Care Act, they almost totally agree that the judge's legal rationale is flawed on this. Mm. And that's, you know, striking down an entire law due to one piece of it. But that's what has happened. Yeah, so, so the, A, this might not survive a challenge, or this, uh, you know, his, his ruling might not survive a challenge. But B, if that, and the challenge is almost certainly going to happen at the Supreme Court, uh, but B, if Brett Kavanaugh, Sam Alito, uh, John Roberts, uh, Clarence Thomas, and, and whoever I'm missing here um, have any say in this matter, uh, you may see that, again, it's piecemeal, just like John Roberts cut uh, you know, Medicaid expansion out of it the first time. This time they may say, well, you know, pre-existing conditions, what does that have to do with anything? You know, that, that's unconstitutional. That's, a, that's an unconstitutional restraint of, of the right of individuals to contract. I see under the Commerce Clause and under the Contracts Clause, you know, uh, constitutional arguments that can be made to strike down Obamacare. And I suspect that they will prevail at the Supreme Court. So get ready to kiss your pre-existing condition coverage goodbye. Right. And, and, you know, this appeal uh, would go to the Fifth Court, uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, Tom. Right. And that Which is, is very one conservative of also. the most conservative courts, period. Yeah. yeah. So they'll probably, they'll probably strike those things right. down as well. It's so going to get real interesting, then, Bob. And I think this is going to feed the demand across America for, you know, we want what Canada has, Medicare for all. Well, this combined with the fact that the Trump administration, as you are aware, Tom, has taken pieces of the American health care, left pieces and taken pieces as it has uh, cherry-picked, which increased premiums, and you, and you add that, and then also the fact that the um, condition was taken away of having the insurance in the first place of the need to have it, you know, mandating it, and that was removed unless people then went on the exchange, and then the, quote, tax break, which gave, let's face it, it taunted people who were in really need of, need of money saying, well, you know, I don't pay a penalty now, so I won't go on there, and I won't have to pay health care, not thinking about what happened. So all of those factors have led to probably in the end maybe something that might come out good, uh, not that it would be on a, on a uh, bipartisan basis, 
but the fact that something's going to have to happen. And then the Medicare for all is something that I think was very successful. Do you think there's any right. chance, Bob, that the Republican-controlled Senate would go along with Medicare for all if Nancy Pelosi would get it out of the House? Tom, if this explodes enough, things get bad enough, a lot of Republicans aren't going to have coverage either. Yes, I think it would be a big push to them. That's amazing. Bob Nay, author of Sideswiped, former congressman from Ohio. Bob, thanks for dropping by today. As you probably know, Louise and I are basically vegans who eat fish once a month, but odds are you're not. Omaha Steaks has a really great product for the holidays for, for those of you who eat meat. This is the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Right now, Omaha Steaks has an amazing limited time offer for my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT and you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now just $49.99. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut tender top sirloin steaks, two savory premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth generation family owned company with over a hundred years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef hand cut by master butchers in Omaha. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com Enter the code REPORT, R-E-P-O-R-T, REPORT, in the search bar and get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. That's omahasteaks.com, code REPORT. Tom Harbin here with you, and on the line with us, our old buddy Greg Pallast, who has been just, uh, <laughs> boy, this has been his year. The investigative journalist, author, filmmaker, the most recent, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. You can find it over at Amazon. GregPallast.com is the website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Palace, just like I'm Tom underscore Harbin. Greg, welcome back. Glad to be with you, Tom. First off, you have been, since before the election, on the beat of voter suppression, particularly in Georgia. And I understand that the lieutenant governor is uh, asserting, or at least the people around him are asserting, that it looks like there's 100,000 ballots missing in this election. Yeah, uh, what's happening is it's called undervote. That's the plight uh, statement for uh, uh, there was no one voting. It's it just uh, for lieutenant governor. Now, you have to understand how hot this race was. So Stacey Abrams, a um, running mate, people voted for Stacey, you know, ran out, all this enthusiasm running for, for uh, people voting for Stacey Abrams and then not voting for her lieutenant governor. Excuse me. A um, lot of monkey business in, uh, in Georgia. We know about that. We know about the 340,134 people, a third of a million people, illegally removed from the voter rolls by the Secretary of State. Well, he also sets up the machines. Georgia's back in the, uh, you know, the dark ages of, of push-and-pray voting, with uh, push-button uh, um, um, uh, ballots that, you know, electronic ballots. The touch and somehow, machines. mysteriously, yeah. hey, people said, oh, I'm so excited about uh, changing the administration, but I'll just, you know, I'm not going to vote for uh, Stacey Abrams' running mate. That's like voting for president, not voting for vice president. So, yeah, it's suspicious. It's awful. The race was such a, a god-awful and obvious fix. Just add this onto the list. Was the, uh, I, you know, f uh, forgive me, I don't recall who the lieutenant governor candidate was on the Democratic yeah, side. Remember at this point, and that's the point, people just vote for, you know, the governor and the Democrat. You know, if you're voting Democrat, you're voting Republican, you vote, uh, you vote the party line. Yeah, but my, my question is, uh, was it a person of color or was it a white guy? Because if it was a white man, if a lot of the people who voted who didn't vote for Stacey Abrams did so because she was black. You know, Georgia's notoriously racist, uh, the, at least the whites there. 
Um, is it possible that the lieutenant governor could have more easily won the election and you'd end up with a split ticket uh, basically controlling the state of Georgia? Is that what they were trying to prevent by messing with the machines? Trying to they were trying to prevent the votes getting counted. Look, you also had the secretary of state's election itself was was uh, a mess because with all those voters removed from the voter rolls, remember you had nearly a half a million Georgians who were purged from the voter rolls by Brian Kemp the year before the uh, Secretary of State, the year before the election, who didn't know they were purged, no notice. And you had a runoff um, last week for, um, for Secretary of State. Um, it was so close, it was within, you know, less than a, it was about a tenth of a percentage point in the general election. And this is after they threw 300,000 people off the voting rolls, Yeah, Democrats. so I mean, the Secretary of State's office should have also gone to the, to the Democratic Party. It's not whether I support Democrats or not, I support democracy. And you had all these people not allowed to vote. You had people who were supposed to have, uh, I, I was there when people, I have on camera, people denied the right to a provisional ballot if their name is not on the voter rolls. But they say, I'm a citizen, I live here. You're supposed to get a provisional ballot. So Stacey Abrams went to court and said, count those provisional ballots. Problem, Brian Kemp Hello? blocked people from even getting those ballots to which you were entitled under federal law. This was, I think, the worst Jim Crow election I have seen in my career. I've never seen anything like it. So, you know, governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, all down the line, um, you had hundreds of thousands of votes not counted, not registered, um, it was a steal all the way down the ticket. It was just ugly, ugly business. And and Georgia's not unique in this, Greg. Uh, where where else no. is, where else in the country? I understand Florida's pretty bad. Texas is pretty bad. What, you know, if, if well, Georgia's the worst, what's yeah. what's the well, second, third, the fourth? No, I would say uh, Georgia is the poster child because Brian Kemp, as Secretary of State, used every single trick. I, in my book, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. <laughs> A Tale of Billionaires and Ballot Bans, I go through the 10 ways to steal an election. He used all 10 and came up with a couple more that I hadn't even figured on. Uh, you like turning, like not allowing people to have provisional ballots. About, I would say, close to 100,000 voters showed up to vote and were denied the right even to the provisional ballot, which usually gets thrown out, but at least you could fight for it. Stacey Abrams had lawyers ready to fight for those ballots, but, you know, she wasn't allowed to. So um, I would say Georgia's the worst, but, you know, other states, Mississippi, Ohio is, is I would say, number two. Um, number three is Michigan. Um, and, you know, and by the way, it just shows you even that there was a victory in Michigan for Democrats. It shows you that they can't steal all the votes all the time. So that's why I tell people, please vote. Yeah. They steal about 5 6%. That, that's, that's, that's the theft ratio. Right, and that's then the gerrymandering do. ratio is also around 5 or 6%, so we need yeah, to turn you know, out you you know, 13 14% more. Yeah, I mean, you got a big detriment. Yeah. But if you look at the uh, population of, of Michigan, the, the demographics in Georgia and Ohio, uh, Republicans don't stand the chance unless they, they you know, jigger with the voting rolls, uh, mess with the vote count. And, you know, and you try, you know, like there's a push to get paper ballots in Georgia, definitely an improvement. But as we saw in Michigan in November 2016, where Trump supposedly won by 10,700 votes, you had 75,355 paper ballots out of Detroit and Flint never counted. You know, whose ballots were those out of Motown? Well, you know, Trump didn't win Michigan. So even paper ballots are not the, the, the magic bullet cure for this. Right. Dili you know, uh, diligence, 
overwhelming the steal, showing up with more votes than they can steal. That's the that's the only solution in the end, though. Though of course we should we should push for paper ballots. We should push to stop this game of. of erasing voters from the voter rolls. Yeah, and when you say Mich uh, Trump didn't win Michigan, you mean actually not. I mean, the yeah, official word know. is that he won Michigan he by won like 12,000 votes. 10,700 votes because they didn't count 75,355 paper ballots out In of Detroit. Detroit. Because yeah. the machines, 87 machines, see, because they, they, you have a paper ballot, but you have machine readers, and the machine readers broke down. And by the way, the Republican governor who had control of Detroit, because Detroit was bankrupt, and he took management control of Detroit, um, was informed that those machines were not working. And he said, hey, what, a, what a terrible, terrible shame that those poor black folks will cast ballots, which we know will not get counted. This is stunning. And by the way, when I'm talking to Europeans, I mean, they can't believe this stuff, Tom. Yeah. They just can't believe it. Yeah. Greg, we're, we're going to hit a break real quick here, but uh, you also, uh, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush was uh, laid to rest a week or so ago, and we did a, an hour-long special on the, uh, on the crimes of George uh, Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, you, you had something that I didn't even know about, uh, that yes. he, he made a fortune and 50 people died? That's right. 50 miners were buried alive in a field, in a gold field at George Bush's gold mining company. Bet you didn't know he had a gold mining company. No, I didn't. And uh, um, and what happened was uh, Bush's gold mining operations, part of Barrick, he's a big advisor to Barrick. He mm -hmm. was he was helping them get a buy a field in Tanzania, and what happened was uh, the the field was already owned by uh, jewelry miners, people who have like thirty foot deep um, small mines that they dig out and they get little teeny teeny uh, pieces of gold for jewelry. Mm -hmm. And to clear the, that area to sell the property to George Bush, the government and a private company that was selling to Bush ran bulldozers over the property, filled in those jewelry miners' mines. Fifty miners were still in those mines. The reason why you didn't hear it is when I published that story in The Guardian, The Guardian was sued by George Bush and his gold mining company, or I should say by, by the gold mining company, and that scared the hell out of U.S. papers, including the New York Times, which were scared. My, my, uh, by the way, my lawyer, um, Floyd Abrams, also the New York Times lawyer, said, look, they won't run the story because even though they, they'll, they'll get sued and they'll win, we have a First Amendment in the U.S., um, they don't want to spend a half million dollars to tell the story of this genocide. It is a mass killing, a mass murder that enriched George Bush, we understand, uh, to the tune of millions of dollars, George Bush Sr. after he became president. And I got to tell you that my source, uh, one of my sources, uh, who co corroborated the story and got me out the evidence, videotapes, it was horrible photos. If you go to gregpalace.com, you'll see, I just want to warn you, some pretty grim photo, um, that he, he was shot 12 times. He's taken 12 bullets to help me get this story out and other stories about the uh, crimes in Tanzania and tell the truth about Bush's gold mining operation. So, well, yeah, I mean, Bush got a burial with pomp and circumstance. These 50 miners just got bulldozed over and forgotten. And I'm sorry. So, you know, yes, wow. I shouldn't speak ill of the dead, but how about the 50 miners? How should we speak about them? Yeah.
What a story. Greg Palast, you can find it all at Greg Palast, P-A-L-A-S-T, gregpalast.com. And you can tweet Greg, Greg underscore Palast. Greg, thanks a lot for dropping by. You're welcome, Tom. Good talking with you, as always. Right now, Roger Wolfson is on the line with us. He's the former counsel to Senators Lieberman, Kerry, Wellstone, and Kennedy, and a former TV writer. He wrote for Law & Order SVU, Saving Grace, The Closer, and Fairly Legal. He is the founder of a new group that's absolutely fascinating. They're doing some extraordinary work with candidates for public office, Democratic progressive candidates for public office. It's called the Writers Action Group. And in fact, the website is writersinaction.com. Dot com. His uh, Twitter handle is Roger underscore Wolfson, W-O-L-F-S-O-N. Roger, welcome to the program. Hey, Tom. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. So if I'm thinking about running for political office, whether it's uh, local city council or school board, or whether it's the state legislature, or uh, whether it's Congress, U.S. Congress, or, or even the U.S. Senate, um, or, or even, you know, people who are running for re-election who, you know, maybe just kind of squeaked by last time. What are the core skills? What are the core, what is the, what is the key to messaging that a group of writers, a group of television writers and other kinds of writers, fiction writers, can share that can actually qualitatively change the ability of a candidate to win an election? Well, thank you for that question. And coming from you, it's kind of an honor to answer because I think you're somebody that understands this pretty much as well as it can be understood. What I and the other writers that I work with bring to the table is on a daily basis, our job is to bring out authenticity in actors, to write for them so that they're authentic, to coach them on the day through a director, obviously, and a lot of members of my group are directors, on how to speak with passion, with sincerity, with truth. And there's things that we've learned from the industry. There's things that we've learned about how to tell people how to connect to themselves. Because you know, and I'm, my guess is a lot of you, the people who are listening to your show right now know, that unless you yourself, Tom, have an emotional reaction to what you're talking about, and the people who are listening can't really connect to you, you are the cathartic experience for them so they can understand your material, they can understand your message, they can accept and embrace all your facts, and they can learn to at least share your point of view. Without that, without the emotional connection, without the, the heart being involved, then everybody just starts to sound like a talking head. They just sound like, the, you know, like their mouths are moving and nothing's coming out. Yeah. So let's make this real for our listeners and viewers right now. Let's, let's make it absolutely real. I'm a candidate. I'm thinking of running for public office. Walk me through the process. Ask me the questions. Well, I guess well, that's terrific. Okay, Tom, what I would start with is I would ask you, why do you want to run? I want to run because I want to hold corporate crooks accountable. Next question is, why? Why do you want to hold corporate crooks accountable? Because I've seen the damage that they can do. All right, let's talk about that damage. What damage have you seen? When I was born, my father was in college on the GI Bill, it was 1951. Uh, he had to drop out of college because mom had me and went to work in a steel mill in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, an Alcoa plant, and was working in, and the steel, the hot steel came out through these asbestos rollers and he worked literally for a year and a half every day in a cloud of asbestos. And mm -hmm. about 15 years ago, he developed mesothelioma 
The asbestos industry knew that their product caused mesothelioma. They knew this in the 1930s. They covered it up for years and years and years. He developed mesothelioma, which is a particularly brutal form of lung cancer. And he died an insanely painful death. I was sitting next to him with my hand on his shoulder as he drew his last breath. I would never want to die that way. He died throwing up blood. He died in extreme pain. It was, it, and, and he was on as much morphine as you could get. And having seen what this industry did to my father, I want to take this industry down. All right, well, Tom, first of all, on a personal note, I wasn't aware of the story of your father, and my heart goes out to him. What, what was his name? Carl. Carl. Now, I'm going to hold him in my prayers tonight, and you, and your family, and those he touched, and those who are devoid of him now because of what happened. Thank you. The next question I would ask you, Tom, is, you talked about your, your father, and you did so beautifully and emotionally. But I want to hear more about you in this. Give me a moment when, and because you talked about his death, which is obviously powerful, but I want to go back to a memory from childhood, if you have one, of when he came home after a long day and was coughing or was covered with dust or was, or, or even, even more intentionally, had a positive attitude coming home and brought you home a gift, but you could see the grit underneath his fingernails. I'm feeding you suggestions here, and I wouldn't sure. ordinarily do that with um, But I, want, I, 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 I know you're a storyteller and an excellent one. Take us back to a moment with your father as a child that you can recall that had an emotional impact on you. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I can do that right now, Howard. I, I nearly started crying just a minute ago. I, 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 this is the opening chapter, by the way. It's, it's called The Story of Carl in my book, Screwed, you know, uh, which is right. about how, the, how the, the, the right wing has basically taken down the middle class. Um, but if I was to start getting it into that granular level of detail, I will break down on the air. Um, so where is there, is there a middle ground here where I can tell these stories or tell other people's stories that don't cause me to start just falling apart? Well, this is, well, you asked the work that I would do with you. And what I would do is we would probably be alone. Maybe one of your staffers there. Um, I would probably gently and almost therapeutically, and I say this also to you because you're a therapist, I would probably try and guide you there and see if we could get two elements of that that don't make you actually break down. Right. If we could take material and get there. I'm not going to push you on it now, obviously, for, for um, because we're on the air, and, and I respect that. But it, it really, what you've given us now, too, is a teaching moment that I'd like to share with your listeners, because this is something that comes into play in every aspect of the work I do, both as a, both as a coach for politicians. The majority of my time is spent these days in politics, and I'm even on the Hill right now as we speak. Anyway, what I would definitely do is, you know, I, I would encourage you and others, and maybe even the people listening, to remember that in order to connect to people, we have to break down those barriers that separate us from them. Your experience, Tom, with Carl, with your father, as painful and as disturbing as it is, is actually a universal experience. I lost my mother to cancer. I'm sure everybody who's right now listening to the show or watching it has had a death of someone that they care about or is afraid of losing someone that they care about. But in order to 
persuade people, in order to affect people, in order to connect people, we have to be able to access that pain and express it in a way so that people can understand us, so people can hear us, so people have that shared experience with us. And you have to do that as a writer. Very often um, when, when I teach writing and when I write myself, I'm forcing myself to stare in the face of the hardest things that I have to address. Yep. You know, and, and in that sense, storytelling has evolved over the years. If you, if you read Shakespeare, one of the things that you'll note is that whenever anybody dies, or typically when a character dies, they do so off screen. When there's a big fight, they have it off stage, and then people come back clutching each other or clutching their hearts, and we hear about it. Even Shakespeare was afraid of going there. Hmm. In this day and age, Tom, in order to be an effective storyteller, and every politician is a storyteller, in order to be a storyteller, the first thing you have to be is brave. And in terms of that bravery, what you're standing up to is your own emotional vulnerability. Because when you do it, Tom, when I do it, when a politician does it, it gives all of us permission to understand and accept our own humanity. So and that's what's really happening. So I'm, you know, seriously pissed off at Rick Scott, for example, for refusing to expand Medicaid in Florida and uh, right. got to know a woman whose best friend was a young woman named Charlene Dill. She had three little kids. In fact, one of them looks so much like my son in, in one of the pictures that it's, it's uh, I don't think anybody could tell the difference. And Charlene had a heart condition and she had to take a medication that was fairly expensive. And because Rick Scott, and she was working three jobs. She was selling vacuum cleaners door to door, she was cleaning houses, and she was doing daycare. All of those three jobs added up to the point where she still couldn't afford health insurance. And she couldn't get Medicaid because Rick Scott refused to expand it. She was cutting her pills in half. One day she, she was on her way to her third job. She'd been working like 14 hours that day, and she just dropped over dead. And um, I've been saying for years and years on the air, Rick Scott has Charlene Dill's blood on her hands, and, and it's a horrible story. And it's a story that's, according to Harvard, repeated, at least before Obamacare, about 40,000 times a year in the United States, and now around 15 or 20,000 times a year. Are you saying that telling Charlene's story isn't strong enough? It would have to be my story. Yes, I am saying that, because what you just said is a great story. It's very well articulated, and it's powerful. But I don't really see your personal connection to it. I'm not saying don't tell Charlene's story. I'm suggesting to you that you tell Charlene's story from the perspective of how that impacted you and then connect that story to your own life and connect that story to the then the next step beyond that is to connect that story to the people that you're talking to so they feel like they're participants as well. Right. So uh, you tell that story and then say, you know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, a, a relative or an acquaintance who's having to split pills right now or struggling with finances or, or whatever. It's I, just, I want you to get as close as you possibly can to Tom Hartman on that one. There I you want go. you to talk about your own experience. That's how you nail it. Roger Wolfson. Hang on just a second, Roger. We're going to get stepped on here. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Roger Wolfson, the group is writersinaction.com. If you know anybody thinking about politics, or you are, get over to that website. Roger, thank you. When do you want to spot that burglar? When he's casing your home or after he's in? Ask John, whose blink camera alerted him of burglars trying to break in while he and his family were home. Or Shannon, whose Blink camera caught a thief stealing packages. Both times, Blink video clips were sent to police to help convict the crooks. Blink motion-activated indoor and outdoor cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on two AA batteries that can last up to two years. And if you're traveling over the holidays, Blink's live feed option lets you monitor your home and check in on pets from anywhere using the Blink smartphone app. No contracts, no subscriptions, totally affordable, and Blink works with Alexa.
Blink camera systems make great holiday gifts, and they're a brilliant way to monitor holiday package deliveries. Save up to a whopping 40% off all outdoor XT and add-on cameras through December 22nd while supplies last. Visit BlinkProtect.com holiday. BlinkProtect.com holiday. Blink is an Amazon company. Sam in Wellington, New Zealand, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Sam, greetings from the other side of the world. What's up? Oh, well, I heard an earlier part on your show talking about proportional representation, and we're from the country where the biggest party won our, uh, was it, got the most votes at our last general election, but number two, number three, and number four managed to form a coalition to stop the big party going in, also a very neoliberalism party of the National Party of New Zealand. So the neoliberals are the largest party? Do, did I understand that correct, Sam? Yes, the largest party in uh, New Zealand's parliament, but they do not hold the government. It's because the other parties got together and said enough, because they don't control more than 51%. So the other parties got together and said, we together are more than 51% and we don't want these crazy neoliberals. Yes, and, and then we had the, we've got probably the youngest world leader in the world. I don't know if you heard of Jacinta Ardern. I have not. Oh, okay. Youngest prime minister, uh, youngest female prime minister in the world, and also the second one in the world to um, give birth on the job. To get what from the job? Give birth. Was pregnant. Oh, get get pregnant. Oh, remarkable. Oh, I, yeah, 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 I've read yeah. about that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Th that's it's remarkable. So, so is the? I mean, you know, this could cut both ways. Is the is the government then run by basically progressives or by conservatives? Well, it's it's a mixture. It's a mixed bag of how it's been done. It's it's basically it's more progressive than it used to be. Like the Labour Party is more your 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 left uh, social uh, look after people sort of thing. I mean, we had that back when we had Mickey Savage as our prime minister pre-World War II, and it was going through, same through the FDR era and that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. The Greens are the environmentalist version, which is one step left again, and um, and the middle of the ground is New Zealand first run by Winston Peters. And, I mean, and this is the great thing, like people sat there and said, if Winston Peters becomes acting Prime Minister when Jacinta was on maternity leave, people said the sky will fall in. And it just showed that the, what do you call it, you know, Winston Peters ran the country for six weeks and it was business like normal. Nothing went wrong. Nothing changed. It was like, you know, it was a very good power share. Wow, that's and remarkable. I, you know, and I just sit there and I just look at it like, I, I follow the United States politics and I follow New Zealand, I follow a few countries, but I just sit there and just look at like, you know, if, imagine if the Congress had an MMP environment, it would force them to work together. I mean, it can also bring in yeah. smaller parties. Like I hear like, you know, you had uh, Jill Stein for the, um, at the Green Party and Gary Johnson, like, they weren't even really looked at properly in mainstream media. Uh, well, you know, New Zealand, they're forced to be because nine times out of ten, they're in government or they've got like more than five seats of 120 seat parliament right. in power between two. But they still have a voice and they still have. And this is because in New Zealand, you have both proportional representation and instant runoff voting or ranked choice voting. Uh, well, uh, we have ranked choice. Uh, no, we are uh, our electric candidates. Yeah, because we have um, what it is 71 electorates. And um, trying to think, it used to be 49 list seats. So basically, that's proportional representation. So we, right. yeah. So there's 71, 71 individual electorates that are all over the country. Electorates. Uh, Those are like congressional districts here. 
Exactly, yeah, and um, and uh, elected through the first-past-the-post system. But the party vote or the, is the MNP one, and that determines the makeup of the government. Fascinating, fascinating. Sam, and thanks for educating me. Not a problem. I appreciate it, and thanks for the call. Thanks for watching us on YouTube there in uh, New Zealand. <laughs> it's great. Doc in Westlake, Louisiana. Hey, Doc, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. Hey, what's up? Let me start with um, three billboards outside Indytown, USA. Billboard one, you can deny the science, you can't deny the solution. Okay. Billboard two, 97% of climate scientists agree with the Bible. Billboard three, we must be stewards of the earth. What's uh, the billboard two? I, the 97% of... It's actually now 100% of credible climate scientists. But anyhow, right. they, I, would, they, I, would, I would normally say over, but I just simplified yeah. it. 97% uh, of climate scientists agree with the Bible. That the world will be, be destroyed by fire? Of, <laughs> no, that we must be stewards of the earth. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay, Genesis. Caretakers of the earth. Yep. Yes. It, Jesus says that this is God's earth. Yep. That yep. We're sent here to do that. He, you know, he gave us land. So is there an uh, effort in Louisiana to put these amazing. billboards up, Doc? Do what now? Is there an effort in Louisiana to put these billboards up? Not that I know of. Yeah. I'm suggesting anybody out there, please. Um, but it, it really goes back to part two of it. I'm an old white, lifelong Southerner, uh, raised in a very fundamentalist church, and I've kind of got this three-point plan for progressives going forward. And uh, this is kind of an example of point two, which is, I'm listening, Doc. Keep talking. You know, you ask, you know, I was sitting here on the phone. I thought, you know, uh, thinking about bumper stickers, and I thought, WWACN do, EACND. Mm. What would a Christian nation do? Yeah. Would it take care of its poor? Yeah. yeah, that's what FDR was promoting. That's absolutely what, right. what FDR was promoting. Doc, great stuff. Thank you very much for the call. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind? Yeah, Tom, about this decision on the Affordable Care Act, this, this is the epitome of uh, irresponsible judicial activism. It, what the uh, Republican Congress was unable to, to accomplish was awarded them in the courts. It's like, it's like saying the team couldn't score in the first half, so the uh, officiating crew, because they complained about the rules, the officiators awarded them an honorary touchdown. Right. And I'll, I'll, give you th I'll give you three points. First of all, quickly, to, repeal, to say the entire Affordable Care Act, I don't think people realize there are ten chapters in the Affordable Care Act. The, the, what we're talking about here is only the first two chapters. There are all kinds of thing, issues addressed in the Affordable Care Act that have nothing to do with the uh, individual mandate tax penalty or uh, pre-existing conditions. For instance, Chapter Title Ten of the Affordable Care Act reauthorizes the Native American Health Care Act. Right. That's what it does. There are there are there's chapters on on uh, uh, developing new live culture drugs. There's all kinds of stuff. So yeah. for this judge to say the whole thing you have to throw out is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, um, what he seems to be arguing, what he seems to be saying is that because the Republicans passed laws, tax cuts and so on, that the, the actions that they took rendered an existing bill unconstitutional. Right. That's not possible. That's a, that's a very strange uh, twist on substantive due process. Well, what, he's, words, what he's saying is that, the, the, that according, 
I mean, it's a very shallow reading of, of both the Supreme Court ruling and the bill itself. But basically what he's saying is that the only thing that made this law constitutional was the fact that it was supported with a tax. And, and therefore, everything on top of that came out, grew out of the taxing authority of Congress that's found in the Constitution. And that's, when... That's simply not true, because I said there are, no, I agree. there are multiple other chapters that have nothing to do with that. And also, that would be like saying if, if Congress repealed the FICA tax, that that would render Social Security and, and Medicare unconstitutional. Right. No, they'd just be unfunded. Yeah. And yeah, they, so the, that would be like saying that any bill that you don't like that you can't repeal, you just pass, you just pass measures that render it unconstitutional. That's not possible. In other words, the action, the, if anything's unconstitutional, it's the actions that were taken to destroy the bill. Well, and, and, it, and it, you know, he, he, this judge has to be one of these enumerated powers guys. You know, if it's not in Article 1, Section 8, then it, then it can't exist because he's completely ignoring the general welfare, you know, of the nation that's repeated twice in the Constitution, as I recall. I mean, he's ignoring so much that, that, that all, it's, it's, like, you know, it's, it's like we're back to even pre lochner era stuff here. Well, this is, this is definitely Lochner logic. I mean, it's kind of like in Lochner in 1918, Hammer versus Dagenhart, the, the court ruled yeah. if we outlaw, if Congress were able to outlaw child labor, they might outlaw all labor. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the, presuming that there's things that Congress cannot do. This is not mentioned in the Constitution. For instance, could, could Congress pass a 99.99% income tax? Yes, they could. Yep. It would be politically stupid, but they could. Yeah. It, it's, well, and it could Congress has twice passed a 91% income tax. <laughs> exactly. So it's this idea that that it's, the underpinnings were all on the individual mandate tax is is and the other thing it, it, the uh, the cross purpose argument here is that this is all about liberty of contract but all these people that have just signed up for Obamacare have contracts with these insurance companies mm -hmm. so he's, he's he's arguing that at cross purposes with himself yeah yeah there you go Paul brilliant analysis as always thank you for the call it's just like yeah. But, you know, here's the bottom line. He's a judge who was put into place by the Republicans because they wanted a crazy judge. I mean, that's all they're putting in right now are these Federalist Society judges who have been groomed since they were in law school to believe in this wackadoodle stuff. Anyhow, we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And don't forget, in the meantime, democracy is not a spectator sport. It's not something that just happens magically, doesn't fall out of the sky. No, it takes work. And that work comes from all of us, and that includes you. So please get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.